how are you supposed to preach after joyful, joyful, we adore thee? It just doesn't work, and it's, it's rude, is what it is, Rip. Put that in front of the sermon. But fine. thank you, choir. Thank you, Miss Martinez, Rich, and Gerald for a beautiful service and being so warm and welcoming to me this morning. So our New Testament text that we'll be spending some time with this morning, the lectionary, brings us around to this passage in 1 Timothy. It's a really interesting piece of the book for me, but to get to why, we have to look at a little bit of the context first, because it's important to remember that we're reading someone else's mail when we look at the epistles. And so this is a letter written from Paul to Timothy. Timothy is a young associate of Paul. Paul met him and his family while on mission in the city of Lystra and was just floored by this family, this family's faithfulness and love, and specifically young Timothy's passion and devotion to Christ. And so Paul has taken this young man, he's taken Timothy under his wing, he's taken him on some missionary journeys and has trained him as a leader and is now sending him off on his own to address some very serious issues that have arisen in the church of Ephesus, a very prominent and influential, important faith community in these early days of the church. So Paul sends Timothy and follows up with at least two letters. There may have been more, but we have two of them. We call them First and Second Timothy. We're not very creative when we name Bible books. The, the letter opens and closes, so the first chapter and the last chapter, with these really beautiful, poetic, sort of commissioning prayers. But then that middle section that we get to start with today, with chapter 2, they're full of practical advice from Paul to how Timothy is to confront these issues and false teachings and conflict that is spread in the Ephesian church. So Paul starts this, this section. He concludes his prayer, and he's going to launch into practical help for Timothy, trying to hold the Ephesian church together. So, first off, I urge you, Paul writing to his friend Timothy, who is young and capable, but in a very difficult situation, Paul is writing to help his friend in this church move towards greater life, greater freedom, greater health. And this phrase accused me of, at least, that this is going to be something big, right? First off, I urge you, and it, and it better be, it better be good, right, Paul? Paul has given Timothy the mission to bring this important Ephesian church back into line with the teachings of the apostles and the reality of Jesus. The first chapter of this book sets the scene, the leadership in Ephesus, the, the church leadership, it's been infiltrated by leaders who are teaching weird new things and some odd old things. They're obsessed with spiritual beings and genealogies. They think the Bible is some sort of secret, magical book to be decoded and decrypted. They, they seek for secrets and mysteries rather than doing the work of the gospel. Paul calls their work strange teachings. It's a good line. Paul's got a lot of them in this letter. And that their teachings produce, here's another one, endless speculations rather than stewardship. They engage in endless debates and vain discussion over myth and religious legend rather than the work of faith 
or the reality of Christ, and they produced these outlandish teachings on marriage and sex and created a spirit of confusion around the teachings and traditions of the Old Testament and the church. So Timothy has a big task here. This is not going to be easy. He's charged with confronting issues of leadership, of doctrine, of marriage, of sex, of lifestyle. He, he's sent to battle against false teachers that lead. Another great line from Paul. Paul says that teachings like theirs make shipwrecks of their faith. This is heavy stuff. So Paul ends chapter 1 by sort of hyping up Timothy for the work. He, he recalls prophecies about Timothy's ministry and calls him to hold on to the faith and, and what is good. And he tells him, here are your instructions, another great line, to fight the good warfare. Okay, so here are Paul's marching orders, how to fight the good fight against corruption, false teaching, and church conflict. First of all, I urge you, this is going to be big, to pray. Pray. That's it? That's, that's what you got for us, Paul? Pray? Well, Paul does say several things here. He says petitions, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings, which we have a sense of what all these words mean, uh, but they're all sort of wrapped up in our understanding of prayer. When we say prayer, those are all the things we're sort of talking about, to ask something, to ask God to do something, to thank God for having done something. This is, these are the things we talk about when we say Pray. So, Paul's big advice, first off, pray, pray, and pray. Okay, Paul, we get it. You want us to pray. Pray for what? Pray for the salvation of the world, for God's kingdom to come more fully, for the recreation of all things, and for all people to be saved. Okay, pretty good. I can get on board with this. That is a good word. Amen, Paul. God wants everyone to come to know Jesus. So pray for everybody. For everybody? Like, everybody? Everybody? Paul, have you met everybody? Have you met anybody? They're terrible. But at least you don't mean, Paul interrupts, verse 2, pray for kings and those in authority. But surely he doesn't mean him. Surely not that party. Surely not her or them. But Paul, you might be tempted to think, you don't know how bad the president is. You don't know how damaging this political movement is. But, but they, they don't have our interests in mind. They don't share our values. Excuse me. They see the world antithetically to the way of Jesus, or more likely, the way of our political preference. Have you seen how they tweet? Did, did you see that speech? Don't you know what she said? Haven't you watched how they vote? Surely we don't have to pray for those kinds. I imagine that Paul smirks at us from a Roman prison. Yes, even them. Paul knows something about rulers and authorities that don't quite get along with you. 
Pray for all people, even those rulers and authorities over you, so that you can live, back to verse 2, a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness, is how the New International puts it. Peace and quiet doesn't sound very exciting. It's not going to sell many books, and that's probably not going to get you an invitation to speak at the next big youth conference. These words, at least to me, they sound weak. They sound passive. I don't like things that sound weak or passive. But I think the context here is helpful, right? Because the, the church local is stuck in a season of conflict and confusion, and the church global is living under the oppressive reign and power of the Roman Empire. Paul is playing up, I think, a juxtaposition here, an argument of opposites. Christian living is the opposite of the political machinations of the world outside of the church. Christians, they should be the opposite of Rome. Rome who kills their enemy and is engaged in constant warfare. They should be the opposite of these quarrelsome teachers plotting and scheming, weaseling their way into positions of power. They should be the opposite of contemporary American politics demonizing and dehumanizing anyone that would disagree with us. The word Paul is using here uh, for that first one, peace, the, uh, the Greek, yes, I'm still a seminary student. I, I defend my thesis in 10 days, so indulge me a little fun with the Greek. The, the word here that Paul uses for peace, it's aramis, and uh, it, it means something more like tranquility would be a really good way to translate it. it. It shows a little more of this kind of peace that Paul's talking about. I think Paul is inviting us towards, think inner peace, tranquility of soul, that your internal life is peaceful. Peace as the opposite way of being from the world around the church, the opposite way of being from the opponents of the church, that these folks who live in anxiety and schemes and plotting and secrets, who live in fear of who's sneaking up behind them, people who live in concern for what others are doing, other people, other churches, other nations, other political forces. Speaking to the same church, when Paul writes his letter that we call Ephesians, in the fourth chapter, Paul tells these people not to be tossed to and fro by the waves, and not to be blown here and there by every word of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. Paul invites these same people again back to peace. Don't be tossed around. Find peace. And in doing so, you'll be grounded in Christ so that Paul tells them they can, another great quote here, speak the truth in love, developing in maturity and unity to become more like Christ. Peace in our inner lives allows for Jesus to do his good work there. So, peace and quiet. Not that Christians have nothing to do. Not that Christians certainly don't have nothing to say. But that the church's way, 
that the Christian way of dealing with conflict and opposition is not open warfare or smoke-filled back rooms. When Paul says quiet here, he's, I'm going to do the Greek word again. He's using the Greek word hesokios, uh, which is more like the New Revised Standard, I think, gets it right, peaceable. If peace here is a statement about a state of being, then quiet is a statement about behavior. Quiet is the opposite of the world's way of behaving. The world destroys its enemies. And here's something that we need to be reminded of uh, periodically. Christ followers aren't allowed to have enemies. We're not, it's, it's not permissible. We're not allowed to have enemies. As soon as you move someone into the category of enemy, you're immediately mandated by Jesus to intentionally love them, at which point they're no longer an enemy. So this pesokios, this kind of quiet, it's more like peaceable, direct action that we're called to live out there in the world, not as those who destroy our enemies, but those who have become peacemakers towards the noise and violence of the world. Our response is quiet, peace, and love. Reading this, my mind races towards the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, we get this God's eye view of history in the poetic words of an exiled pastor writing to his persecuted church to encourage them. And it, it's an extreme book, right? We don't hang out in Revelation very much. As part of this persecution, things have gotten so extreme that when John goes to write this letter, the only language he can find, the only words that fit, are these poetic, encoded words, language that makes it sound like the whole world is being uncreated, like demonic armies are rising up to destroy the church, and how will the church resist? Will they raise their own army? Will they fight back? Will they raise their swords in violence? How do Christians resist? How do they fight? How do they overcome? Revelation 12:11 tells us, they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, by resting in the humility and confidence, strength, and peace that comes with letting God be God, by trusting in the truth of what Jesus has already done, and by the word of their testimony. Our way of fighting out in the world when we go through those big doors in the back our way of resistance, our way of pushing back, our battle plan, our weapons, our method for overcoming is the word of our testimony. It's by standing on and proclaiming in words and deeds the truth of what God has done for us. Resting in the knowledge that the work's already finished. We don't have to save the world because Jesus already did that. This is how we change the world. This peace with ourselves, this peace with the world, this is how we participate with God in what God is doing in the world. That our action is not self-aggrandizing and it's not violent, but in quiet, direct action we become peacemakers and we overcome through the blood of the Lamb 
the word of our testimony, loving our enemies, on the inside life, peace with God, on the outside direct acts of peacemaking love, and all of it empowered by a life that is, first of all, first line of the chapter, first of all, grounded in prayer. Amen.